All right, good to see everyone. Come on up, find a spot to sit. Keep coming, guys. Keep coming. All right, thanks for coming up today, everybody. Okay, now I was thinking this week, and I decided that I want to have a big, huge, mature oak tree in the middle of my backyard. So I thought I would go out to the park this afternoon, find a big, huge oak tree, dig it up, carry it to my house, and plant it in the backyard. You think that'll work? No, probably not. I don't think so either. If I want to have a big, huge oak tree in my backyard... Yeah, I have to get oaks in there, and I'm going to have to start with a seed. An oak tree seed is called an acorn, right? So I have to start with an acorn. And what do I have to do with this acorn? I have to bury it. I have to plant it. Yeah. Yeah, we have to plant it. And then after I plant it, it, what will it take for this acorn to grow? Yeah, water. What else am I going to need? Sunlight. Can you think of anything else? Air. Some good soil with nutrients in it and lots of time. Lots of time before it's a big, huge oak tree, right? And so if all that happens, if I go plant it, if it has good water and good sunlight and good soil and lots of time, will I eventually someday get a big, huge oak tree? Yeah, I will, right? So that could happen. You know what? This is similar to our spiritual growth, how we grow spiritually as people. We start out kind of like this little acorn. And when we start out in faith, it's similar. It's like God has planted us. We're not mature in faith yet, are we? Are we all grown up in faith as soon as we come to faith in Christ? Not quite yet. We're immature in our faith. We have faith, but we're still immature in our faith. And so similar to how this acorn needs water and sunlight and nutrients to grow, we need something in order for us to grow spiritually, we need faith in Jesus. So our faith in Jesus, uh, in his death and in his resurrection, we need faith in order to be saved, in order to be free from sin, have eternal life. But when we uh, do that, we also need to continue to have faith in Jesus for our spiritual growth, our growing and maturing in faith. And so in Colossians today, we're going to hear that certain people in the the church, there are certain people in the city, they were trying to add a whole lot of other things that people needed in order for them to grow spiritually. Some people were teaching that Jesus just isn't enough. He isn't good enough. He isn't sufficient enough to help people grow in their faith. And they had, they were saying that people had to believe all kinds of strange ideas and do all kinds of a variety of things. Some of those maybe even seemed like they could make sense if you just think about it on your own. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus is sufficient. He is enough for us. And we grow spiritually as we look to Jesus and as we follow him. So this little acorn is going to need some water and sunlight and nutrients to grow. But in our spiritual life, we need to continue to have faith in Jesus in order for us to grow to spiritual maturity. So Pastor Jeremy is going to come up and preach through Colossians chapter 2. So you can go back and have a seat and keep listening to Pastor Jeremy. Thanks for coming up, guys. 
Thank you, Pastor Jeff. We are in the book of Colossians. We're going to begin at the end of chapter 1, verse 24, and go through the end of chapter 2. So Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 24, through the end of the book, or end of the chapter, excuse me. Colossians 1, 24 to 2, 23. Um, the issue here, as Pastor Jeff said, is our growth. Uh, we want to become more like Jesus. We want to hate our sin more. Um, and so how do we do that? One of the things that can happen is we can add to trusting in Christ other things that we think will be helpful to it. And, and the reason we do that is because of guilt often. Guilt is a powerful motivator. Now, used rightly, guilt turns us to Christ. It can be a good gift. Um, but guilt abused or misused can actually turn us from Christ, and we'll see that this morning. The reality is we as believers have incredible freedom in Christ. We have absolute, complete freedom, and some would want to creep in and take that away in order to control us. That's what we see going on here. Let me read these verses. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I had for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in regards to food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 
These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belong to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on about visions, puffed up with reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Good and wise and holy Father, you are good and do good. Please teach us your statutes. Your law is a delight, and so please work within us to produce in us a heart that is all in in observing your precepts. Teach us also that it is often through afflictions that we learn your truth, and so help us to rejoice in all of them. In Christ's name, amen. As I said, the overall overarching theme in this section is growing in Christ, becoming more like Jesus. We see this language throughout these verses in verse one, or 28 of chapter 1. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. His, his goal is maturity in Christ. At the end of the section, at the very end, in verse 23 of chapter 2, uh, it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul wants us to actually stop indulging our flesh, but the way that some folks are going about it is no value. So Paul is here focusing on how we grow in Christ. And what Paul is doing is just simply bringing us back to Christ. Christ is sufficient. Right? In verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2, they're insisting on going about growth by worldly means, by human means. And in verse 19, then they're not holding fast to the head. You can't hold fast to Jesus and something else too is the principle here. You can't hold fast to Jesus and say that attending Mass is required for your growth. You can't hold fast to Jesus and say you can't eat this or do that. You're trying to hold on to two things at once. So the whole purpose of this is to show us how central Christ is to becoming more like him. It's rather simple. There's nothing new here. But this is a temptation we will all face for all of our days. It's very sneaky. Um, It comes in. It comes in very quickly. And so we have to be alert to it. So Paul is trying to alert you to things. You see in verse 8, see to it. Or in verse 16, therefore let no one. Or in verse 18, let no one. So you've got some work to do here. And the work is here guarding yourself from being tempted to add things to Christ for your growth in Christ. This is the job you're being given here this morning. You are to guard yourselves against things that sound right and sound good, but in effect what they're telling you is Jesus isn't enough. That's what's going on here. Jesus isn't enough. So many of you are former Catholics. This is at the heart of the Catholic religion. It's Christ plus. It's adding to Christ because he's not sufficient. And so if we have several hundred million Catholics on the face of this earth, this is a very real temptation, isn't it? 
And in churches like ours, it's a temptation as well. We'll see it. Don't eat this. Don't drink that. Don't do that. Man-made rules adding to the sufficiency of Christ because we feel like Christ isn't enough for my growth. Now, how Paul begins this section is um, striking. He says he rejoices in his sufferings. How are you doing at that? Why, though, is Paul rejoicing in his suffering? The Apostle Paul, or Apostle John says that nothing brings him more joy than to see his children walking in the truth. So Paul, being a faithful minister of the gospel, because of what he preaches and teaches, that preaching and teaching brings him personal suffering. Because he preaches and teaches the truth, he suffers for it. But because he's preaching and teaching the truth, his people are growing. So he's happy. He doesn't care if he's suffering so long as the ministry is being used to see people become more like Jesus. I think parents get this. Maybe mothers in particular. Mothers become a mother through much pain and suffering. They shed their blood to bring life. And then they give of their lives, the rest of their lives, for the sake of the growth of their children. Moms get this. They're glad for the pain. As soon as the baby's in their arms after the ordeal of childbirth, the pain of it's just out of their mind. You've seen this before if you've been in a birthing room. All of the anguish of childbearing evaporates the moment they hear the first cry. This is why Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings. He doesn't care what it costs him because the cost, what he's teaching, is worth it because it's growing his people. Do you understand what's going on here? Paul, in verse 28 then, defines what this ministry is. Let me give you just a touch of background here, though. Colossae is a Gentile pagan Roman city. Uh, It also has Jews who were dispersed. When the gospel came to Colossae, many Gentiles, non-Jewish people, came to faith in Jesus. The Jews uh, were very jealous of this. But because Paul is preaching Christ, because Paul is warning them against the Jewish errors, the Jews are uh, bringing much trouble into Paul's life. But Paul will not stop preaching Christ. He will not stop warning them. And so he's gaining more and more suffering. But at the same time, he's seeing people grow in Christ. And so Paul's glad for it. But he defines for us what ministry is, what pastoral ministry is. Him we proclaim. Christian ministry is proclaiming Christ with warnings and with teachings with wisdom, so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. This is the heart of pastoral ministry. Paul, when he's writing this, is in jail for this ministry. He's warning against the errors. He's warning against the false teachers. He's warning against our sins, and that's bringing him lots of suffering. Let me just apply this real quickly to the American understanding of success in ministry. Our definition of success in ministry has very little room for suffering or trouble or pain or conflict, doesn't it? We equate numerical growth and financial growth as the definition of success in ministry. We have very little room for the suffering of the preachers or the elders of the church because of faithfulness. But we follow a Savior who was executed for what he taught. And and here Paul is showing the faithfulness of his ministry by his uh, earning 
much opposition for it. And so does your definition of Christian success in ministry have room for this kind of suffering? I've heard it said, and I think it's true, that if churches like ours, Pine Grove included, had an p- opening for a senior pastor, God forbid, right? And we had a search team together, and the Apostle Paul submitted his resume. Do you think it would make the first cut? Right? Do you think Paul's resume would be accepted by an American church? I mean, all of his churches are in turmoil. There's lots of fighting. He himself has suffered at the hands of the religious elite. We'd look at Paul and go, man, he's a troublemaker. I I don't want him. People in his churches get angry at him and leave, and they go to churches down the road. I don't want Paul. I think that's an indictment on us, isn't it? We don't read the Bible with faith describing what ministry is. We want clean ministry. We want comfortable ministry. We want ministry where no one is ever convicted of everything, but everybody's always getting along and there's always more people coming. But Paul's definition of ministry is, I'll go through hell as long as people are growing for Jesus. We've got to have that kind of definition of ministry. We've got to have faith for that kind of ministry. So Paul is gladly willing to take on pain to stir up trouble for himself so long as it is trouble stirred up for the faithful preaching and teaching that results in the growth of God's people. This is what good leaders do. Good leaders are always bringing the fight to them. You'll know a good leader when the people, when the people are angry with him. We see this in our city right now. In our uh, city council meetings, and our mayor and Ryan and so on. They're bringing the fight to them. That's good work. We want, we, we want to say, just get along. Can't we just get along? But no, they're doing good work. They're bringing the fight to them. That's what Paul is doing here. So Paul defines Christian ministry as preaching the gospel with warnings and teachings. So he might ask, what does that look like? What, what would this actually look like? And in chapter 2, Paul shows us exactly what it looks like. Chapter 2 is Paul putting into practice verse 28 of chapter 1. He is going to preach Christ, replete with warnings and teachings, so that people might grow in Christ. That's what chapter 2 is. <clears throat> Paul is going to preach the gospel in order, with warnings, with, with hard words, with wisdom and teaching, so that he might present people mature in Christ. So again, what I said is going on here is you have non-Jewish pagan Gentiles who hear the gospel and are born again by faith in Christ. So they become Christian through faith in Christ. And then they, they want to grow in Christ. They have a lifetime, as Pastor Jeff said, the little acorns, they want to become mighty oaks. They have a lifetime of patient growth and godliness ahead. How do we grow? You ever ask yourself that as a Christian? What are you to do in order to continue to grow in Christ. This is probably, as a Christian, the thing you want more than anything else. Don't you get tired of yourself and your sin? Don't you wish you could grow more and more quickly? That's us. If you're a husband, you wish you were a better one, a more Christ-like one. If you're a wife, same thing holds true. You want to become a better parent. You as a young person... um, you have your own little sins. You're disobedient to your parents. You're harsh to your siblings. 
You wish you wouldn't do that anymore. Maybe you lie and you don't want to lie like you do anymore. Maybe you're greedy and you just keep wanting more and more and more and more. I don't know what it is. But we'd wish we'd put those things to death. We'd wish we'd stop indulging our own flesh. But how? How do we do it? Well, in Scripture, it's actually very easy to define. We come and hear the preaching, teaching of God's Word. that's filled with warnings and teaching. And we submit ourselves to it by faith. The one thing we don't do, though, is we don't listen to those who would think that Christ isn't sufficient and that we need to add to Christ other things. Now, now, we never say it like that, do we? No one ever says, I don't think Jesus is sufficient. No one ever says that. So what Paul is going to do here is show us how it works. Now, one of the things that we'll see throughout these is Paul will say, let's say in verse 4, Don't be deluded by plausible arguments. Don't be deluded by plausible arguments. Or in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition. It sounds very human. It sounds very reasonable. These things sound wise. In verse 23 of chapter 2, they indeed have the appearance of wisdom. So these things that are teaching you to add something on to Jesus sound really good. They sound reasonable. They make sense to our human, carnal, falling ways of thinking. And the other part of that is Christians, by our very nature, are often uh, decent. We like to think the best of others. A negative of that is we're sometimes gullible. I don't want to offend you. But the reason Paul has to say this is because Christians um, are sometimes naive or susceptible and sometimes fairly easily to things that sound just about right but actually aren't biblical. Um, the biblical description for this is sheep. And so what Paul is doing here is trying to help the sheep from being easily persuaded by something that sounds about right, but actually is teaching you to turn from Christ. So if you can accept that about yourself, you're willing to admit that about you, you're probably willing to admit that about somebody around you, even if you're not willing to admit that about you. And so I'd encourage you to admit that about you. So what these folks are trying to do <clears throat> is, is say that in order to be a really spiritual person, in order to be a, a, a genuine, godly Christian, you can't eat that. You can't eat that. You can't drink that. You have to make sure you do this festival but you can't do that one. Daniel ate a certain kind of diet. And if you're going to be a real Christian, you got to do the Daniel diet. Works, doesn't it? It works. It's really all that's going on here. 
how do we stop indulging our flesh? Well, trust in Jesus and don't eat bacon. <laughs> right. <clears throat> One way that appears to be wise that is actually of no value, as we read at the end of chapter 2, is to deal with heavenly spiritual things in very earthly ways. We see sin in our bodies and we think the way to defeat our sin is to be severe to our body. But it doesn't work. It's actually legalism. So the principle is this. You have guilt for your sin. You want it atoned. You want it removed. And you're trying to deal with it, but you're trying to deal with it on your terms. Because you and I want control, don't we? You, you and I want the easy route. We know that we come to faith in Jesus bringing nothing, but now that I have faith in Jesus, it depends on me, depends on my effort, depends on my work. <clears throat> Paul calls this man-made. Now what I'd like to point out is this is the play our world is currently running on us, that our culture is currently falling for. See, what these people do is they create an alternative list of sins that aren't biblical sins, and they elevate those above actually things that are sin. So in this day, it was, you can't eat this. So that's now a new sin. And so long as you told the line to these man-made sins, you're going to be good. That's what our world is doing. Our world takes biblical language of guilt, shame, and justice and so forth and uses it to control you. What do I mean? Well, being white is a sin today. If you're white, you, you're bad. Being a white male is worse sin. You've got to check your white male privilege at the door and just shut up. You've got nothing to say. You're bad. You've dominated this world for so long. Now, if you're a white male sin who uses plastic straws, right? the, I, we laugh, but this is what we do as Christians. I, I'm drawing this out in our culture because we, we do that foolishness in the church. You're a good Christian if you don't drink alcohol. Right? Now, alcoholism is wrong, abusing alcohol is wrong, and so on. You're only a good Christian if you don't eat this. This is the play our world is running on us. Being a stay-at-home mom is a sin in our world. You get looks. People say things to you if you've got a bunch of kids, and what do you do? I stay at home. Oh, really? Translated. You're wasting your time and you're hurting women. Knock it off. past week or two has announced that Rhinelander High School has a third option for a bathroom. We're told more and more students are transgender or gender expansive. That's a new phrase. And so they require another bathroom option. This is the new holiness code. If you don't capitulate to that, you're not a good person. You're a sinner. And the thing with our world and with these kind of rules is there's never forgiveness. You'll never measure up. There's no forgiveness ever. If, 
if you're a Christian in the school district and you say that this isn't a good idea, this actually hurts people, and language matters, pronouns matter, and how can I trust a school district that's supposed to teach me how to use language if they don't even know what him means anymore? If you were to bring that up, right, if you were to raise that, you're now the sinner, You're the deplorable. You're the unforgivable. So what Paul is getting at here is exactly the cultural rot we're experiencing. But it began in the church. It began in the church. When we play loose and fast with God's word, when we add to it beyond Christ, where do you stop it? Where do you stop it? So why does this work? Why does this play work on us? Well, one reason is we just need to know Scripture more. We need to see that this book is God's inspired eternal word, and it is the rule and authority for all of life. We as Christians have this problem with us. We come to Jesus, and then we try to figure it out on our own terms. We want to figure it out ourselves. We don't turn to the actual words of Scripture in the detail and give ourselves to it. We allow other competing authorities to take that rule in our lives. But the main reason that these kind of things work on us is simply we do not have the faith in Jesus to forgive us and to grow us. It really comes down to our unbelief. Verse 6 of chapter 2, therefore, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So, therefore, just as you received Christ, so you go on in Christ. You never move beyond faith in Jesus. So what Paul does is he simply preaches the gospel as the solution to this problem. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 15 are just simply Paul rehearsing the truth of the gospel as the solution to this problem. See to it that no one takes you captive by these things. And what's the solution? Verse 9. In Christ, the full deity of God dwells bodily. See, the solution is just Jesus. That might seem like something of a letdown to you. Because it's here in the sermon where you need the ten ways to become a better Christian. If that's a letdown to you, that is revealing something in your heart, isn't it? If just needing Jesus and just hearing the gospel again is kind of like, doesn't that reveal something about you? Don't we just need Christ? And who is Christ? Look at, look at who he is. He is God in flesh. <laughs> we have been filled in Christ. He is the head and rule of all authority. He is the one who has given us a circumcision, a spiritual circumcision where he's taken out our heart of stone and implanted a heart of flesh. 
Verse 12, we've been buried with him. We'll be raised with him to the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. We were once dead in our sins and trespasses. God has made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. The record of guilt, of debt that the law demands has been set aside, nailing to the cross, and he has disarmed all rulers and all authorities, and he's put them to open shame. That's what you need more than anything if you're going to become a more godly Christian. Just that. That's it. Beginning and end, full stop, you need Jesus. That's it. So, So you got that, right? You just need Jesus. That's it. You don't need more rules, except what's in the Bible. You just need Jesus. I want to draw a little something more about Christian ministry and and then we'll conclude. Paul is preaching Christ here. Okay? Verses 9 through 15 are really a wonderful display of the gospel. It shows you who Jesus is and what he's done. It's simply staggering. Do you have faith to believe that? But Along with simply preaching Christ, who he is and what he's done, Paul also includes lots of warnings. He's warning us against things. You see that especially in verses 16 to 23 of chapter 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. He's saying that to believers. You allow people to come and have control in your life by you believing what they say about you more than what about Christ says about you. So, let's use a stay-at-home mom example. Don't let anybody ever pass judgment on you for that good glory. They don't get to control you by their dismissal of you. Okay? Or you as a family with a lot of kids. How many kids do you have? Oh, that's a lot of work. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. If you won't accept government assistance, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. See, you have to admit that you have a weakness for what others think about you. Paul is warning you against this idolatry. What I wanna, the point I want to make here is we in the church have, for the last 10, 15, 20 years, There's been this gospel-centered movement. We love hearing chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. But that's all we want. We don't want any of the warnings associated with it. We only want the positive. We don't want to hear any negative. But Paul loves these people. He knows where they're tempted. He knows their weakness. And so he's willing to go there. He is willing to warn He is willing to tell the truth of where they are going to be tempted. He is going to preach against their sin. He's going to preach about it. He's going to do it clearly with no subtlety, with no nuance, because it's loving. He doesn't care to avoid the trouble. He wants to bring it to his front door. He's a good shepherd. So how many of you are tempted, let's say in verse 21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? How many of you grew up in a church that had legalism? 
You're controlled by what other people think about you. Not by Christ. And the solution is Christ. Let me just close with verse 23. Paul, in the last phrase, says, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It is a good desire to stop the indulgence of your flesh. The connotation here is sexual. Back in verse 18, he says, they have sensuous minds. It's, it's crazy how often legalism is associated with sexual sin. That people want to control you with legalistic things often want to bed you, to speak frankly. There, there's sexual perversion behind some of this. Now, now, you and I struggle with sexual sin. It's a real thing. And we want to stop it. We want to stop indulging our flesh. We want to stop giving into it, don't you? And the only solution to that is Jesus. Man-made rules, don't eat, don't touch, don't do this, don't do that, are of no value. Notice that. It doesn't say just little value. No value at all. Why? Because Jesus is sufficient. That's it. It's Jesus is sufficient. Why is Jesus sufficient? Because he's the God in flesh. Because he suffered for our sins in his body. Because you have complete and utter forgiveness in Christ alone. Because in Christ you will be raised to eternal life and dwell with the Father forever just because of Jesus. That's it. That's all you need to know. I forgot one other thing. Verse 7 notes that we should abound in thanksgiving. One of the things you'll note in legalism is it's very thankless. Often pretty cranky. So a great solution to this, we're coming on Thanksgiving, is just be thankful, people. Be thankful for the food and drink you have. Be thankful for the clothes you have in Christ. He's given it to you. So enjoy all things. You are Christ. And Christ is yours. All things are yes in Christ. And so you can enjoy them fully with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live out this freedom we have in you, that we would be thankful for all things, that we'd add nothing to the sufficiency of your Son, that you'd keep us from uh, being deluded with plausible arguments, with things that sound so wise and seem to appeal and promote religion that don't actually, they're of no value at all. And so God, help us to look completely and only to your Son. He is the Savior. He is enough for us. And so God help us to look to him alone in all things. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge. The charge is this. Is be content with leaving your sin at the cross. What I mean is so often when you sin, you want to confess your sin and then you want to do something more. You want to make yourself feel bad enough until you've had enough contrition that you feel like you're good. Or maybe you've got to do a bunch of work to undo your sin and do it. But that's not it. When we come to Christ and we, leave our, and we confess our sin at the cross, it's done. And so that's the charge. Just be done with it at the cross. It's finished there. Why don't you stand for the benediction now? May God protect you from all empty deception that are only traditions of men rather than accord with Christ. May God give you the faith that you have been made complete 
And may all rule and authority be his in our lives, in our homes, and in our church, in this world, because he is the Lord raised from the dead, who is over all rulers and all authorities, both now and forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.